0: Incredible. Didn't she do a great job? Amazing job. I had to twist her arm so hard to get her to speak. It's been so long since she spoke, and it was just gold. I was listening to the podcast. I wasn't here last week, but I was listening to the podcast and just thinking, man, everything she had to say was so applicable, so helpful, and so creative. Uh, She used the drama uh, sort of segment of her message to sort of get some of her message communicated. And it was so inspired me that I thought maybe next week I'll do a drama. And if it goes really badly, I can blame it on Daisy. And if it goes really good, I'll take the credit myself. Anyhow, no, I'm just, but I might do a drama next week. I'm actually starting to think about it. It's just really cool. She did a great job with that. Uh, The other, so we're in a series that we call Holy and Whole. That's the the teaching series we're in, Holy and Whole, that that God's desire for us is to be holy. That means like him in our character, uh, spiritually mature, But God also wants us to be whole, and that means uh, dealing with the wounds inside of our lives where we might be emotionally immature or sort of frozen in time, actually, because of the wounds we've had. Sometimes we're developing emotionally just sort of normally, and some sort of event happens in our lives, and we just sort of freeze there, and we don't progress the way that we normally would or should uh, towards having a healthy emotional life. And so those two things go hand in hand: spiritual maturity and emotional maturity. And that God wants us to grow in both those areas, not just one. So we practice, uh, we practice uh, confessing our sins to to grow in spiritual maturity. We also practice uh, seeking an emotionally whole life, so healing from the wounds of our lives. And so we've been talking about this for a few weeks. I, I shared a little bit about the how we need to be armed. To, to fight for this because it really is a battle, it's a spiritual battle, and we talked about uh, the ways that we do that. Uh, also, it took some time to talk about the role of prayer and how prayer was so integral to do, doing this because we're talking a lot about things we're adding and things we're subtracting. And so we talked about how um, in order to add uh, prayer, we may have to subtract some other things. And then Daisy last week, she, she's, she threw a whole new word into the, the mix, and that's the word clean. And um, I, I, I thought it was really good. I just jotted a few things from, from what Dacy said. Uh, the law of God shows us God's holiness, but it also shows us our self-righteousness. And that's not, we don't like to see that, but we realize that God is holy, he's perfect, he's utterly good in every way. And then we realize that we fall short of that and that we discover that sin isn't someone else's problem, but it's our problem. It's something that uh, isn't just something out there. Someone else uh, does evil, but we also struggle internally uh, inside of ourselves, uh, and there's a war going on inside of us, and so I just love how she just laid out, you know, this, this path to practical cleanness or being right with God uh, on a daily basis is, is through walking with God, and that... If we 're responsive to God, if we're repenting and receiving forgiveness uh, from Him, we're admitting our wrongdoing, um, we're turning to the Lord and we're obeying Him, we experience this cleaning up in our lives. You know being clean is just all the rage, really is all the rage. I mean you know uh, you know what I 'm talking about when I say eating clean. Anyone know what that means? eating clean, okay, And the rest of you are saying it sounds dangerous I don't want nothing to do with it <laughs> right So eating a bag of Oreos is not eating clean. Uh, there are other foods you would choose, you know. Um, it, it's a really big thing. People are really into clean right now. So eating clean, so it's like uh, making sure that everything, like, you know, I'll often have friends on, you know, who are posting on their social media, they're saying, you know, uh, you know, it's been so many days that I've been eating clean and I feel great and probably the rest of you feel terrible, you know. Sometimes it doesn't come off the best. But, uh, and then there's, then there's the other thing, it's like, We're we're always being told that, oh, something else is dirty in your life. Are you hearing that through ads and stuff like that? Is your water clean enough? Is your water clean enough? Then, if it's not, come to our service where we'll sell you water that's cleaner than the water you get from your tap. Oh, I didn't even know that was a problem. But, you know, we're being sold being clean, right? What about your carpet? Is your carpet clean enough? Is it clean enough? Should you really be walking on that carpet? Right. This week we had a really um, clean moment for us. Our sewer backed up. We're like, well, yeah. It was, it was fun because it was a day where we had some people coming over to inspect our house for, uh, you know, for we, we, sometimes our foster parents. And so we had to come over to inspect our house. So we're saying, would you like to inspect our basement? It's a real fun ride. Just I hope you brought your rubber boots. Anyhow, um, so that part didn't happen. But yeah, clean is really appreciated. It's really appreciated. Takes a lot of bleach to get back to clean once you got there, Right. But clean is a big deal. Clean is a big deal. Except spiritually being clean. Maybe it doesn't get the press. It deserves. And uh, that's what we've been talking about. This holiness in our lives. That, that that's the power of sin that wants to hold us captive uh, being, uh, being released off of our lives. And that we actually are staying in a right relationship with God. We're trying to keep that. And some people talk about they go to the dentist and afterwards they have that clean feeling on their teeth. Wonderful. But what about a clean feeling in your soul, right? Where you just say, you know what? It feels good. It feels good to be in tune with God. It feels good to be in agreement with God. And it feels good um, to walk with him. So that's what we've been talking about. And, uh, and Daisy did an incredible job last week. I felt like just saying ditto this week because of of how well she did on just talking about this, Um, although I will just point out one thing I would maybe criticize is that she did say that we hear too many sports analogies in the church, and uh, I couldn't disagree more. Um, So uh, last week she did a breastfeeding analogy, and I just want to say to all the men in the church, it's okay guys, I'm back. (laughs) I know that was frightening for you. (laughs) We're going right back to where we're comfortable with sports analogies. In high school, I played two different sports. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I played two different sports. I played high school soccer and I played high school football. In football, in grade nine, I was... uh, Skinnier than I am now, if you can believe that. And uh, so I, the only position I really could play was defensive back because that was the only thing I was big enough to play. And I could run fast and I could form tackle, so I played defensive back. But in grade 10, I had gained 15 more pounds, so I was big enough to play corner linebacker. It was, pretty, it was a pretty big improvement, right? Still form tackling, still running, but a little bit closer to where the big boys were. It's exciting. And then in grade 11, I gained 15 more pounds... And they let me play middle linebacker. I was probably the smallest middle linebacker they ever had, but I got to play middle linebacker on the defense, and that was exciting. And my dream was, if only, if only by grade 12, I could play offensive line. Except for I didn't uh, gain 100 pounds that year. (laughs) Because that's what it would have took. So I had to stay where I was. Um, this, last week, I went out to, or the last couple weeks, I've been out to see high school football and high school soccer here in Moose Jaw. Exciting stuff. High school football, uh, they fill Guthridge Field stands with all the fans. High school soccer, three people show up. And uh, I'm one of them. And, uh, but there's a really exciting playoff game that happened Friday night, and it was the uh, Peacock versus Central. And I've I'm, I'm been cheering for Peacock this year. I have a vested interest there. And... Uh, uh, one, of the, one of the students there, I'm really a big supporter of. Anyhow, so we had Peacock and Central, and, and, and Central has never lost all season. They had the most dominant offense of any soccer team out there incredible playmaking skills, relentless attack. They were an unstoppable force. But Peacock had the best defense in the league, they were like an immovable object. And it was this unstoppable force meeting this immovable object, and it was this incredible game, and somehow, some way, Peacock managed to get a goal in the game. And because they got a goal, and they had stopped Central at every turn, it looked like they were going to win. Well, I was getting excited because Central had never been beat. and this was the playoffs. And so I was just thrilled. I was, you know, I'm cheering for my team. I had friends on the sidelines who were central supporters, and they probably didn't like how loud I was cheering, but I didn't like how loud they were cheering either, so it was fine. But we're cheering, we're yelling, and got tense, and it got to the final, like, five minutes of the game, and it was like, we're going to win. And then suddenly, in the box, there's a kerfuffle, and the referee, and it's a free kick, and they score. Oh, I was like, oh my. And so it was a tie game and they played out the last five minutes and nobody, nobody scored again. And then, then they had overtime and it's late. It's getting dark and they're still playing. They play the overtime. Nobody scores. So they go to shootouts. And shootouts... You know, they get up there and they blast the, goal, the ball at the goalie and he tries to dive to the right or the left or up or down and save it and it went back and forth and back and forth and we're ahead and they're ahead and we're ahead. and it's exciting and we got to like, I think, six different kickers for each side. So, 12 different shots on the net and finally, Peacock won! It was a miracle! A miracle! <laughs> and all the Peacock supporters are clapping. All the central guys are, hmm, not having. It. And I thought because it was like an hour and a half of soccer, and a lot of the players didn't sub, so that's a lot of running. That's more than maybe we run on a regular basis. And then it was extra time, and then it was shootouts in the dark, and by the time it was done, I saw some of these players, they were, the winning side was elated but tired, and the losing side was deflated and tired. They're just exhausted, and I thought, boy, to win something so close, you just have to fight every inch of that battle, don't you? You just have fight and fight and fight and fight and fight and fight until the last minute. There's several times where I thought, oh, it's over. No, it's not. Oh, it's over now. No, it's not. It just went on and on and on until the very end. And you just see these players come off the field and they're totally wiped. And I thought, sometimes our spiritual battles feel very much like that. So much so that I think sometimes we shy away from the spiritual battles that are in our lives. We say, it's easier to forfeit this game than to fight it to the end. In fact, I even see this dynamic in the lives of Christians who have served God faithfully for years, but they get fatigued, and and maybe in later years, they go off the rails. I think, what happened? I've even had that in my life, where people that I really admired and respected lived so faithfully for God all those years, and then I find with great disappointment that they didn't end well. They didn't play until the end of the game with the same intensity that they played along the way. And I, it gets me wondering, what does it take to finish well? What does it take to, to play until the end of the game and to play well? And so I wanted to share with you a scripture today that I think is one of the best... Uh, One of the best... To me, it's a rousing scripture. It grabs me, it encourages me, and it challenges me to fight. And when I talk about fight, it's to fight the sin in my own life. To fight the ways in which I might compromise in my own life. The ways in which I might just capitulate and say, ah, it's good enough, it's okay, this area doesn't seem to change. This sin seems to continue in my life. This repeated habit or pattern doesn't seem to be... Uh, it's fine. It's good enough, isn't it? I remember once I had a mentor. He was going for a walk with me, and he, he asked me about my, you know, Steve, how's your relationship with God? And I remember saying to him, well, compared to most of my peers, I think it's pretty good. And he stopped dead, mouth opened, looked at me like I just swore, and I thought, what? And he said, Steve, it's not a competition. It's a relationship. And I realized I had settled. In my heart and mind, I was thinking, as long as I'm doing better than the next guy, or the average guy, or the average out there, God must be pleased with that. But God has called us to a high, high standard. He wants us to imitate his holiness. He wants us to be like him. In fact, he is working and willing to work in your life, whether you're cooperative or resistant that's his desire to work with you to make you like his son to make you holy like Jesus to change your character in those ways so i want to share this scripture with you as an encouragement to you i hope it's an encouragement to you it's a challenge to you i think it you know i think of all the great rah-rah um, moments i you know, witnessed in my life. My dad sort of introduced me to Winston Churchill's speeches when I was young. You know, we'll fight on the beaches. We'll fight on the la- landing grounds. We'll never give up. Never, never, never give up. Yeah. So I grew up on that. And then, uh, of course, when I was in my 20s, I, just like everyone in the same age as me, we all saw Braveheart, right? And William Wallace, his incredible speech, you know, would you trade all those days to come back, you know? Incredible. Speech. I think this one is one of them. I think this is one of those amazing words. And I want us to read it together. So it's Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll read 1 to 11 to start. So I'm going to ask you to stand to read the scripture, and and then you can sit down when I do some commentary afterwards. But it's Hebrews chapter 12, 1 to 11. And we'll get it up here on the screen here yet. Here. I said that in faith. (laughs) There we go. Awesome. Okay. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his sons? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children, for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So I'm going to work my way back through these scriptures. Therefore, we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Um, That's referring to the the chapter before, which is chapter 11 of Hebrews, which lists all these heroes of faith uh, through the Old Testament, people who stood for God, who... uh, like Moses, had a choice between he could just live for the pleasures of sin in Egypt as a royal prince, or he could suffer with the people of God in order to fulfill his destiny. And in the end, he didn't go after pleasure or the pleasures of sin, he went after the joy of serving God. Right? So lots of examples of different ones that are in this great cloud of witnesses, as ones who went before us, who've already fought this fight Against sin and for God, with God, really. And so since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. Let us throw off everything that hinders. What are the things that hinder? What are the things that hinder? Let's start that, with that. Let me read you a couple of verses. First Corinthians 6:12 says, I, "I have the right to do anything." This is people's quotes. Paul's writing to them. "I have the right to do anything," you say." but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. So, being mastered by anything, it's like talking about addiction, really. You know, something having control over us, something in which, uh, you know, again, sin longs to be our master, and... uh, And there's all sorts of things that can master us. But that's probably the first question. It's the obvious question that we ask when we think about things that would hinder us spiritually or hinder us in our lives. We say, is there anything um, that's addictive or enslaving in our lives? That's the obvious question. If there's anything addictive or enslaving in our lives, the obvious answer is we should fight, do whatever we can in order to Free ourselves from that addiction. Free ourselves from that enslavement so that we can serve God. It's interesting, though, in 1 Corinthians, they in, go to chapter 10, these very same lines come up again, but they come up with a different ending. It says, I have the right, 1 Corinthians ten twenty-three. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Again, that's a pretty key word, beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive, So here's the less obvious question. The obvious question is, is anything, uh, am I addicted to something or is something enslaving me so that I'm not really my own? Right? Am Am I, if I sort of learn this cycle of, uh, getting life somewhere else and just repeat it, repeat, repeat with diminishing returns, because that's what addiction does, right? You start out and you sort of get this high or return and it's great and then you get a little bit less, and then you get a little bit less and you need more to get as much and then you get less and less. You need more and, and you just, you just, you just, you just. Now you're not even getting anything, you're just preventing the lows. It's a really sad cycle, but it's a real one. We see all the time acted out in our culture. So it's obvious. Everyone in our culture knows this. They say, don't get into that. Don't do drugs. Don't, don't, uh, you know, don't binge drink. Don't do those things because it will lead you on a cycle down lower. Everyone knows that. But the less obvious question is this one. Is there anything in your life that's not constructive and not beneficial? That takes a whole load of your life? That kind of stuff you say, well, what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about that? I, it's, not, it's not that bad, is it? But you might also say it's not terribly beneficial. It's not terribly constructive, right? So let's throw off everything that hinders. The things that hinder us that are very obvious that hinder us, and also the things that hinder us that maybe wouldn't be obvious. Uh, I, I can tell you, the more I walk with God, the more he starts to speak to me about areas that I never thought he would speak to me about. I get it if there's something really obvious. That's just, anyone could have told me that. But the Holy Spirit is more refined than that, more helpful than that, in that he'll speak to me about areas where he say, you know what, Steve, that's not beneficial. That's not constructive. I say, well, it's not really doing a whole lot of harm. Well, but it's not God's best for me. It's not what he, and so it's amazing as you walk with God, he'll actually ask you to do things that you'll say, nobody else is doing this. Or no one else is stopping doing that. No one else is making that subtraction and addition in their lives. And God's going to whisper to you and say, Hey, I have a path for you. And I'm asking you to still obey me. Don't look around. Don't be like Pastor Steve used to be, saying, Compared to others, I'm doing pretty good. You follow me. Peter asked this question when Jesus was... uh, in the very end, last days of sort of their interaction together, he got comparing himself to John. You know, well, it doesn't say it's John in the text, but it is it's, it's John, basically. He says, What about that guy? What about him? Because t- Jesus was telling Peter how he's going to die, telling him how he's going to give his life for Jesus, for his faith. He said, What about that guy? And Jesus said, What's it to you? <laughs> What's it to you? He actually says that. What's it to you? You follow me. You follow me. So this is where listening in prayer is really helpful, right? Because we can really, it's possible to live your whole spiritual life just looking around to others and saying, what's the average? 50%. I'm going to aim for 51. But God's got 100% for you. He's got so much more for you. And you don't want to miss out on it. So it says, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now you say, well, that sounds like the same stuff, but let's talk about the entanglement, right? Sin does entangle, especially repetitive sin entangles. Um, When this was written, people didn't understand brain chemistry like they do today. I mean, God did, obviously. He inspired these words, but it's amazing what we understand now. We understand that um, when you do something repetitive, repetitively, repetitively you, it's like, imagine that your brain has a whole forest of trees in it. Okay, this is crazy thoughts, but imagine that. So you see that it's a whole forest of trees, and what's happening is you are, you are walking through those trees in the same path again and again and again and again, and, again, and you're making a groove or a, or a, a path by repeated use just like if you went through the same four, if you, you know, you cut through on your way to the Canadian Tire, there's actually a path down the hill that's just worn by people walking through. Well, where are you going to walk next time you go through? On the path, 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 on the path. That's what happens in our head. It happens good ways and bad ways. So there's good news. You can train your thoughts, right? When you take a thought captive, you say, that's not, that's a negative thought, that's a wrong thought, that's a lie from wherever, and I'm going to take that captive and I'm actually going to replace it with this good thought, you're actually saying, hey, hey, that well-worn path, I really want it to overgrow with weeds and become out of use. But there's a new path that I want to establish in my life, right? So when I'm anxious, I praise, right? When I'm anxious, I thank God, I express gratitude. That's one of the ways I can diminish the one path and enhance the new path that I want to have happen in my life right? The sin that so easily entangles, right? There's repetitive patterns. Uh, You know, there's a song that's pretty popular right now. I think, I can't remember the name of the band, but anyhow, the one line is, everything that kills me makes me feel alive. Anyone know? What's the band? One Republic. Republic, Thank you. You win 100 church points. I don't know what you got. Uh, We have no prizes. I'm sorry. Um, Yeah, so this song, and it says, everything that kills me makes me feel alive. It's actually quite insightful, isn't it? Everything that kills me makes me feel alive. But how does it make you feel alive? With diminishing returns. It makes you feel less and less and less and less alive. And so you need to do more of it, but it doesn't produce the same results. Because it's killing you. It's a brilliant line. A brilliant line. And uh, we run to the things that are killing us to make us feel alive. When Christ actually offers, on the other hand, life with him life abundantly, a full life. He offers that, and it doesn't kill you, right? Not just the feeling of being alive. That's sometimes why we pursue certain paths of sin, because it makes us feel alive. Well, it's killing us. Where on the other hand, God offers us true life that doesn't have all those negative repercussions and, and that, that cycle of death that's happening in our lives. So sin entangles us and, there's, and uh, it causes diminishing returns in our lives and we're a little bit less alive each time. And, and uh, the challenge here is throw off everything. Why throw it off? Because you're going to run. It says, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Now here's the thing. And say, Are we just sort of getting rid of sin or fighting sin just for sin's sake? Like, what's the point? Why do we do all that? Why do we do all that? Um, there, there is a race marked out for you. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And what's the race that Christ has set out for you? I mean, most of what the race is would be general to most of us, right? Live for God. Love him. Love our neighbor as ourselves you know, some pretty broad strokes we can look at, and we go, okay, that's the same for everything. But there's very unique twists and turns for each one of us individually because God's shaped you very individually. He's given you a certain personality. He's given you a certain heart, certain passions that other people don't have. He's given you certain life experiences that he wants to use, even the negative ones, even the hurtful ones. God never wastes a hurt. So he's got a race marked out for you that looks like a lot of other believers' races would be, but it's very unique still. It's sort of the same and different at the same time. So what is it? Paul said this in Philippians 3.12. He says, not that I've already obtained it. He hadn't obtained the end result of his race or i have already become perfect. He wasn't exactly holy like God. He was progressing, but he wasn't there. But I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ laid hold of your life so you could lay hold of this race, this prize, this pursuit. The things he has in store for you. Second Corinthians 5.15 tells us about the orientation of the race. It says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died for them and was raised again. So again... The, the trajectory of the Christian life is here I am. I'm living for myself. I, the world's about me. My decisions are about me. It's, it's what's going to be the best for me. And then we meet Jesus. We realize he's got a double claim on our lives. He, he created us and he bought us back. And we go, okay, I'm experiencing your love. I'm experiencing your forgiveness. I'm experiencing acceptance that I can't get anywhere else. I realize you created me. You died for me. And we come to that moment where we say, I'm yours. So now, what happens? Now we're not living for, now we're, we're, we're shifting, right? We're shifting, I'm saying, okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm doing a 180, and now I'm living for God, not for myself. I'm living for his priorities, for his purposes, right? Before that, mm-hmm. I might have thought loving my neighbor was a nice idea, but and then I met my neighbors and decided that wasn't gonna be possible. Now, it's not optional anymore because I've made him my Lord and Savior. I made him my master. So loving my neighbors, even though it's going to be difficult, whoa, is it going to be difficult. It's not optional because I've turned my life over to him. I'm loving him first. I'm loving those around me second because he has given me uh, a race to run. He's given me a role... in this in this life and things to do psalm 1 helps us with this i i i psalm 1 is one of my favorite psalms because i love the picture of it let me read it to you blessed is the i don't think it's on powerpoint so blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that the sinners take or sit in the company of mockers but who's it doesn't mean you don't associate with non-christians or people who are sinners like you are <laughs> but it means those aren't your dominant influences okay So let's get the rest of it. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night, that person is like a tree. What kind of tree? That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Then it goes on to the comparison. Not so the wicked, they're not like a tree. They're like chaff. You know what chaff is? That's the part of the, the stalk. That's the stalk, basically, off the grain. You get all the grain heads. You're like, yay, we got grain in the bin. Chaff. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the assemblies of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. I think it's a beautiful thing. When you're thinking about your life going forward, think of yourself as a tree. That God has got plans for you. He's got things in store for you. He wants you to be like a tree. How big of a tree? God only knows. But I think He is meant for you to grow in holiness and also in wholeness so you can be as big a tree as you can possibly be. Why? So I, well, I don't even get the tree. The tree analogy for me is always that what do, you, what do you get out of a tree? Well, you can pick fruit, it's a great thing for vision, you can stand under it in a rainstorm. It's a great place for protection. I remember sitting with a, a, a guy and he was, he was deliberating about career and stuff like that. And uh, we were just talking back and forth, like, should I take this job? Should I take that job? And uh, suddenly we were talking about the tree in Psalm 1. And I saw his eyes light up as we were talking about, I think God's called you to be the biggest tree you can possibly be. But this is not about you. It's really not about you. It's about you, surrender to God, submitted to God, living righteously before God, and then I think you're meant to provide for many. He wasn't married at the time. I said, maybe God will give you a wife. If he didn't give you a wife, you're still called to provide for many. Seriously, you can work, you can put your hands to something, and you can go out and make a difference in this world, whether you're married, unmarried, I don't care. You're meant to be a big, big tree. So, throw off everything that hinders, everything that entangles. Get a brand new vision for your life. This isn't about, could I possibly get a job and pay the bills? It's like, get a bigger vision than that. See more than that. See that God has given you breath, and your life is just a breath. It's short, it's a window. But He's given you this, it's a trust. But he's given you. He's given you your days. And he's going to make you a big tree if you allow him to. He's going to grow you on the inside. He's going to show you areas of sin that you're going to need to confess and deal with. He's going to show you areas where you're not emotionally mature. And when that happens, you're going to want to hide that in shame. And I'm going to tell you that's not the way to go. You need to open yourself up to other Christians. You need to get real with them. You need to walk with them. They're going to be on the exact same journey as you are. They're going to want to hide their stuff too. You need to be transparent with them, walk together, and grow up to be the big tree you're always meant to be. I'll share just a couple more verses with you and I'll be done here. It says... talking about Jesus, it says fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith so we're throwing things off right and left and center that are not beneficial, not constructive or addictive or enslaving but how do we do all this? We we do it by fixing our eyes on Jesus he's the pioneer of our faith, he started us on the road of faith if you started that journey, it's because he initiated with you he went first, put his cards on the table, told you he loved you died for you, demonstrated clearly that he loved you on the cross, offered his forgiveness to you. He's the pioneer, but he's also the perfecter. He wants to guide you step by step by step so that that faith in you turns into life transformation. You say, well, I, I have the hope of heaven in the future. Is that enough? That is amazing. But you know what that's supposed to do? That anticipation of you being with God, of you being uh, um, like him, experiencing an existence that's holy and whole in the future is meant to seep into this time now. It's meant to affect us now. So we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Who, for the joy set before him, He had joy because he was obeying the Father and he was anticipating union with you and I, relationship with you and I. He endured the cross, scorned its shame. Doesn't mean there's no shame in the cross. There was loads of shame in the cross. In fact, shame was dumped by the truckful on Jesus through the cross. It doesn't, but it just means he was not ruled by it. Some of us, we get a little bit embarrassed and we, we step back. We don't do what we should do. Jesus stepped in. He wasn't ruled by shame. He was intent on accomplishing his mission of bringing you into relationship with him. And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That whole thing about you in your struggle, the fight against sin that you're engaged in, you haven't quite resisted to the point of shedding your blood, that's pointing us back to Jesus, the one who did. Consider him. Consider him. If there's one thing I fear that this generation will lose, across the board, Christians as well, it's this thing. Contemplating Jesus. We get wrapped up into entertaining ourselves, stimulus, response, patterns, behaviors, filling up every cranny of our spare time with something but i've got shows recorded on pvr i've got netflix list i have to get through and then i've got responsibilities and i'm on a hamster wheel and my life is going like this and god says fix your eyes on me contemplate me look at what i've done for you look at who i am look at how i am holy Look at how I call you to be holy and how I desire to heal you so that you will be whole. Fix your eyes on me. Let's stand together. Guys, can you throw that slide up for us? We're going